Well, we do continue uh, walking through the Gospel of John. We've come to chapter 6. And so before we turn to that text, I want to invite your imagination a little bit here. I want you to imagine that you've been on a really long car ride in a car cooped up. Maybe there's a lot of people in the car. That's what we're going to experience soon um, with our five kids all crammed into a Suburban with all of our luggage. Um, Sorry, this is supposed to be theoretical. So imagine you're in a car on a long road trip, and you're tired, and you're sick of being on the road, and everybody is starting to get on each other's nerves, and you're like, when is this going to end? But also imagine that at the end of this journey, you know that there is a feast coming. You're hungry, you're thirsty, you're tired, you're worn out, but you know that you are driving to a feast of unimaginable glory. All of your favorite foods are going to be there. Maybe it's macaroni and cheese. That would definitely be on the table in, in my family. Um, just think about your fa- the very the choicest foods, the greatest flavors that you can imagine, and you know that you are driving to that incredible feast. And so there is annoyance and there is weariness and everyone is tired, but there's this glimmer of hope and expectation for this incredible feast. Maybe you're going to be surrounded by loved ones and friends and family that are at this gathering where there'll be all of this food. And so there's maybe a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel that sort of carries you there. Well, the people of Israel in Jesus' day were on something of a really long car ride, and they had in their view the hope of a feast. I'd like to read to you from the gospel, uh, excuse me, the the prophet Isaiah, actually before we uh, turn to John. There was an expectation among the people of Israel for a coming feast that was associated with the Messiah, the person that God would send to restore Israel and redeem his people, there was this incredible feast that was associated with his coming. So I want you to to listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain that the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So there was this messianic hope, this hope tied up with the identity and the coming of God's Messiah, the one who was going to set everything right and bring salvation to his people. And that Hope was accompanied by the image of this great feast with the richest of foods and the choicest of 
wines and God wiping away all the tears from their eyes at this incredible feast. So this longing is felt by the Jewish people generally at this time. And at the time that we come to John chapter 6, it was probably in an even more heightened way. We find at the beginning of John chapter 6 that this is the time of the Passover. The time of Passover, which was this annual remembrance of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of the great Moses. And so around this time, there their senses and their hopes and their sort of religious fervor and their expectations for for the Messiah are probably even more heightened. And so in our text today, Jesus is going to meet this longing with a miraculous sign that, though subtle, painted a clear picture of himself as the promised Messiah to those with spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. So go ahead and turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 6. If you're using the uh, story ESV Bible that we've provided, I believe it's on page 738. And just to give you a little bit of context for where we are today, um, we have just seen Jesus in Jerusalem where he healed a paralyzed man outside the pool of Bethesda. And that healing took place on the Sabbath. And so there was all this controversy drummed up about Jesus doing this work of power on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders charged him with blasphemy because Jesus' response to their charge of working on the Sabbath was, the Father is working on the Sabbath and so am I. So he claims a divine prerogative for himself and even identifies God as his Father. And so they say, you are blaspheming because you are claiming equality with God. And so Jesus goes on this lengthy Uh, uh, monologue. He has this big speech in response to that charge where instead of backpedaling and saying, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I I didn't mean to claim that I'm equal with God. He drives the stake of his divine identity further and further into the ground, saying that he has a unique relationship with the Father and he does everything he does and that he has authority to give life and to dispense judgment and that he is to be honored as the Father, worshipped as God, and so, and then begins to charge the Pharisees with uh, studying the scriptures and searching the scriptures and missing the whole point, because the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, testify about him, and they have missed him. They don't believe in him. They don't recognize him as the Messiah, and so he says, you're experts in the law, and you're studying the scriptures, and you're totally missing the point. So now, John chapter 6 is going to follow a similar pattern where we're going to see an act of power on the part of Jesus, followed by a lengthy, uh, this is more of a dialogue. There's a little bit more back and forth in this chapter with Jesus saying something and then someone in the crowd responding and then Jesus kind of responding to that. But there's a lengthy discourse, if you will, following uh, the the miracle that we will observe today uh, in our passage. And so John, just as a reminder, across the pages of his gospel, John is portraying Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, and the answer to the Jewish longing for redemption and the fulfillment of all God's promises through the prophets. And so again, he says, I'm writing these signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have 
life in his name. So today we find the fourth sign that John records for us in his gospel. So let's just begin looking at this text. Instead of reading it all together, we're going to kind of uh, walk uh, just one piece at a time through the text. So look with us at verse 1 of chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, after this is an indefinite period of time. So we don't have the sense that this happened right away after the events of chapter 5. Could be uh, even several months later. John just doesn't tell us. Uh, so sometime after the events of chapter 5, Jesus is going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And just a little geographical reminder, Jerusalem, where he was in chapter 5, is in the south of Palestine, and Galilee is up in the north of, of the land of Palestine. So Jesus and his disciples have now journeyed back to the north, which is his hometown region, if you will. And so now they're back uh, at the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And that's just a little reminder that, that Jesus is doing way more signs than John is recording for us. John intentionally records seven of these signs for us within the first 12 chapters of his gospel. But he's doing more than that. We saw when he was in Jerusalem in chapter 2 that many believed on him because of the signs that he was doing, even though John had only told us about one of them at that time. And here, he's got this large crowd in Galilee following him because of all the signs that he was doing on the sick. In other words, he's healing people and he's meeting needs and having compassion uh, on, on those who are, are broken in various ways. And so just a reminder that Jesus' reputation as a healer and a miracle worker is not unwarranted. He is actively and frequently uh, performing acts of, of miraculous power uh, in healing the sick. It's also a reminder that he is regularly surrounded by the poor the ill, and the needy. These are the people who congregate around Jesus because he is meeting their needs. If you knew that there was a, a healer in town that had the ability to make you well and you were struggling with some physical ailment that had been around forever, you would try to get in this guy's presence. And so that's what's happening in Jesus' life and ministry. So the, the poor and the ill and the needy are congregating around Jesus and he is in compassion, healing, uh, and restoring them. So I think it's important to remember that characteristic about this crowd uh, as we see uh, Jesus' uh, miraculous power applied to them. Like This is not a crowd of well-educated social climbers. This is, these, are, these are needy, broken people that are congregating around Jesus. Look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain... And there he sat down with his disciples. Now, it doesn't tell us a particular mountain, but in this region of Galilee, which was surrounded by mountains, it was a very hilly area. And so it could have been really any hill uh, that he had access to. And so he went up onto the mountain with his disciples and he sat down, which, by the way, is what a rabbi would do. He would sit down in his, among his circle of disciples, and that was the, the posture of one teaching, uh, the, the posture of a rabbi imparting wisdom and knowledge to his followers. And so Jesus is sitting with his disciples, which has the sense of Jesus leading and teaching these disciples. Also, we see uh, Jesus' uh, pattern of, of going into the mountains, often to be alone. 
Uh, this was something that Jesus did uh, time and time again throughout his ministry. He would uh, retreat from the crowds uh, and, and, and be alone. In fact, that might have been the only place he could find solace because these crowds were congregating around him in the villages uh, and, and in the deserts, and so he would come out to the, these mountains for, for time to be alone. But in this instance, John doesn't really record anything for us about Jesus' time with his disciples, and almost immediately we see Jesus' mindset is toward meeting the needs of the crowd below. So we see that a crowd is gathering, and Jesus' mind is already moving toward that crowd. Look in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Again, as mentioned before, this is a time of heightened religious awareness and specifically a time of remembrance for God's deliverance of his people from oppression, which is not an insignificant detail in this story because it frames for us both what the people may be expecting and how they experience what Jesus does and what is in Jesus' mind as he performs this miracle. So the the context of Passover and deliverance and this messianic feast is not lost uh, on Jesus and possibly not on this crowd. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then, And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I want to point out two things about this question that Jesus asks Philip. First of all, he already knows he's going to meet this need. Jesus' question assumes that he's going to feed these people, right? Because he doesn't say, oh, wow, we got this big crowd. What are we going to do? Should we send them home? He says, where are we going to get bread to feed them? He's already got in his mind, I'm going to feed this crowd of people. I'm going to meet their need. And the second thing, just as John tells us actually in, his, in verse 6, he gives us a little bit of commentary on Jesus' question. So he said, uh, he, he, he saw the large crowd and he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knows, not only I'm going to meet this need, but I'm going to do it in a pretty cool way, a way that demonstrates that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah. He knows what he's going to do, but so why is he asking Philip, hey, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? I think he's inviting Philip into the conversation as an opportunity to see if he's looking with eyes of faith, and maybe to point out Uh, his lack of faith. Because what Philip does, he answers kind of like an accountant in verse 7. He says, well, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A denarius was basically a day's wage uh, for a worker in Israel at this time. And so 200 denarii, it's like 200 days. That's about eight months worth of a person's living. So maybe he's looking at the coin purse and their treasury and like, well, we only have eight months worth of a person's living wage, and that wouldn't even be enough to get a little bit for all of these people. So the crowd is big enough at this point to their eye that even eight months worth of a living wage would not provide even a little bit of food for everybody. So Jesus goes, where are we going to get bread? And Philip goes, I don't, I don't know. I mean, even with, with eight months worth of living, we, we couldn't get everyone hear hardly anything. Like, I, I just don't see. So Philip is not looking with eyes of faith. Philip sees the need. He sees the problem, but he doesn't see the solution. And he's only thinking in very kind of pragmatic human terms. Well, to get food, we need money. And all the money we have is eight months worth of one person's wage, and there's way too many people here uh, to feed them even a little bit based on that. 
But Jesus always has a better plan to meet the need than the one that comes most naturally to us. Sure, he could just buy everyone bread. He could say, all right, let's go into town and buy you know, eight kajillion pieces of bread or whatever and feed all this crowd. And maybe the people would go, wow, that was really generous of Jesus to, to feed all the people. But how would they know that they had been fed by the Son of God if that's the way that he went about it? Just buy a bunch of bread and feed everybody bread. How would they know? Like, it could just be, wow, really nice guy or a really rich guy, tons of money to buy all this bread, right? But how would they know that they had been fed by the long-awaited Messiah if they simply purchased bread for everybody? Jesus says, no, we're going to do this a different way. I've got, I've got a better idea. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, if you remember who Andrew is, it tells us that he's Simon Peter's brother, but we saw Andrew once back in John chapter 1 where he brought Simon to Jesus. So he found Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist, and then he went to his brother Simon and said, come, we have found the Messiah. And then we see Andrew again in John chapter 7, bringing some curious Greeks to Jesus. And here in John chapter 6, Andrew brings this little boy and his lunch to Jesus. Every time that we see Andrew in the Gospel of John, he is bringing someone to Jesus, which is not a bad thing to be known for. We don't know a whole bunch about Andrew. He's not a major character, a major player in the gospel stories. But every time we see him, he's got somebody, and he's bringing him to Jesus. I think that's a great, a great thing to be known for. But Andrew, too, fails the, the test. We saw in verse 6 that Jesus asked this to test him. Well, Andrew doesn't have any bigger eyes of faith than Philip did. So he goes, we got five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that? And really, at the detail of barley loaves, this is the lowest quality bread available at the time. This is the food of the poor. Barley loaves are not like nice, rich, full bread. It's like, and, and the fish would have been not like a whole like filet of fish type of thing. It would have been like little pieces of fish that you kind of put on a cracker. So this is like a Lunchable, all right? This is, this is hey, there's a, there's a kid here that has a Lunchable which is like not even really quite food, I don't think. Um, and there's no way that this Lunchable is going to feed all of these people. What is, what is this for so many? How is this enough? This isn't a solution. So there's a kid with a Lunchable, but what are you going to do with that, Jesus? Well, we're going to find out. In verse 10, Jesus takes matters into his own hands. Look at it. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. This is the first time we get a number of this crowd. So far, it's just been a large crowd gathering. Now we find out that the men in the crowd number 5,000. That's a big crowd right there. 5,000 is a lot of people. I haven't been in that many gatherings that are 5,000 people or more. I've been at a few, a concert here a festival there. But for the most part, you're not around 5,000 people a lot. That's a big crowd. But this is only the men that it numbers, which was traditional in that day. They would number a crowd by how many men were present. So if you think, probably most of the men in that crowd had a wife. That number is like closer to 10,000. 
And maybe most of those married couples had at least one kid, possibly two kids, possibly more. We're already at at least 15,000 people, maybe as much as 20. So somewhere between 15 and 20,000 is the number of this crowd. It, it's hard almost to even conceive of what 15 or 20,000 people gathered really looks like. And what you have is a Lunchable. You have a multitude of people and a little plastic tray with about eight crackers and a few pieces of ham, right? I mean, that's kind of what a Lunchable is. I love this in verse 11. Check this out. Jesus takes the Lunchable and he gives thanks. And just in passing, it says, after he had taken the barley loaves and given thanks, he began to distribute it. He gave thanks. We, we tend to pray before a meal, right? Lord, thank you for providing this food. Thank you for meeting our needs. It's kind of what Jesus is doing here, but he's doing it in front of a crowd of 20,000 people with a Lunchable. God, thank you for providing this Lunchable for this crowd. Do you think maybe the people are going, you have lost your mind. You think that is a sufficient provision for all of the people that are here? You've got fifteen to 20,000 people here, and you are thanking God for giving you a Lunchable? Maybe you should be busy problem-solving or griping that this is all you got. But Jesus gives thanks. He prays aloud, Father, thank you for this provision. Thank you for giving us our daily bread. Maybe he prayed something like that, which he, prayed, which he taught his disciples how to pray that way. Is this a bad joke? This is God's provision? Five barley loaves and a couple of pieces of fish for a multitude of thousands? Watch what happens. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish. How much of it? As much as they wanted. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. They kept breaking bread to place in front of people, and, and there kept being another piece of bread to, to, to lay down. They're setting little pieces of fish in front of people, and there was always another fish to set down. Could I have seconds? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can I have another one? Yeah, you bet. Where's it, where's it coming from? I, 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 wanna see, I wish I could see the disciples' faces as they're handing out this food and going like, there's more. It's still, it's still coming. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, here, have some more fish. Almost like testing it. Let's see how much fish you can take. There's still more fish. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming. Where does it keep coming from? So Jesus isn't bound by the limits of physics or biology or any other kind of science you can name. Jesus does what he wants. He is sovereign over the very elements that create bread and fish. I guess it's a fish that creates fish, but he's sovereign over all of that. I've got a Lunchable. I don't care. I'll feed 20,000 people. He could turn that into a steak if he wanted. I don't know that he did. It looks like they just handed out bread and fish. But they had their fill. Look in verse 12. When they had eaten their fill, 20,000 people are full. They had enough. Whew! That was a lot of food. That was one big Lunchable. I've had all that I need to eat. When they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments 
that nothing may be lost. What? Leftovers? Exactly. That's a great response. What? Leftovers? You had a Lunchable. Are there possibly leftovers after you fed 20,000 people? And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus doesn't just meet needs. He exceeds them. He doesn't just barely provide enough to scrape by. As Philip said, you know, to give everyone just a little. He provided enough bread and fish for all 15 or 20,000 people to eat all they wanted and have leftovers. You're going to be eating barley and fish sandwiches for the next week, right? You've got 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 baskets. How many disciples did Jesus have? 12. One basket of leftovers for each disciple. So the crowd's done, they've eaten, and each disciple's standing there with a basket. This food wasn't even there. We each have a basket of leftovers of food that didn't exist an hour ago. Friends, this is our Jesus. He is powerful and he is generous. He is able to overabundantly meet your needs. And here's the better part. He wants to. He wants to overabundantly meet your needs. He wants to meet you in your place of need with grace, strength, finances, wisdom. Whatever you're lacking, Jesus is able and ready to supply it. Paul told us in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But we need to come on his terms. We don't go to God and make demands. He's not like a genie where we rub the lamp and make these preposterous wishes and, and, and God's going to have to meet our demands. We come to him on his terms. Instead of flipping through your wallet like Philip, I don't know, Lord, I don't, it doesn't look like there's enough here. Just tell him your need Trust him to provide in his way and give thanks when he shows himself true and strong in your life. That is the Jesus that we know and worship. So here's how people respond in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, remember the purpose of a sign is not just like a magic trick. It's not just to be impressive. It's to point people toward his identity. So it looks like this worked out pretty well. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They were referencing Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses, the great deliverer of the people of Israel, had said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. So the people know the promise of a Messiah, a prophet. And during this week of Passover, the remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel through Moses, they're probably more aware of it than ever. Their confession about Jesus, this is indeed the prophet, capital P, prophet, is correct, of course. The miraculous feast of bread and fish he's just provided them carries the, the overtones of this messianic hope 
of Israel. The feast that we talked about at the beginning from Isaiah 25. So they are right to acknowledge him as the prophet that Moses spoke about. However, we shouldn't be surprised by this point, their expectations for the kind of Messiah he would be and what his kingdom would look like were a bit misguided. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Put this guy on a horse. Let's ride him into town and kick out the Romans and start a revolution. Right? That's what the people are expecting. This is the prophet. Let's make him king. Let's go and kick out the Romans. Right? They, they want a Messiah, but they want an immediate rescue from their earthly predicament. They want a king, but, but they want him to be a strong political figure who will drive out the Romans and give the land of Palestine back to the Jews. A struggle that's still going on to this day, by the way. They didn't understand the truth that Jesus would later speak to Pilate, the governor who would oversee his crucifixion. He told him in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, before his kingdom takes a physical earthly form, which it will in the future, it grows as a spiritual kingdom. As human hearts bow to his authority and yield their lives to him, his kingdom grows. As his followers in the world proclaim the gospel of new life in Christ and spread acts of kindness and mercy, his kingdom advances. Not with swords, not with guns and military strength, but with love and compassion. By seeing the needs of the people around us and following the example of Jesus, meeting those needs. But this wasn't good enough for this crowd. So Jesus sneaks away and finds retreat on a mountain. So once again, he has left the crowd and he is in the mountain by himself. Jesus clearly reveals himself as not just the Messiah, not just the one that God promised to send, but as the Son of God, the one who has authority over bread and fish and the laws of nature. So the next few verses provide something of a bridge from the story of the feeding of this multitude uh, to the lengthy discussion that's going to take place for the rest of chapter 6 between Jesus and a crowd in Capernaum. Uh, and again, as I said, Charlie will walk with you next week through part of that discussion as Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life, obviously hearkening back to the bread that he had just provided. But we have this fascinating account uh, in verses 16 through 21 of how Jesus and his disciples got to Capernaum, which is where the next scene will take place. So I'm just going to read these verses to you and point out a couple of things. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But look with me at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. He's still on the mountain by himself. 
The sea became rough because, of a strong, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Is this a miracle? Yes. Jesus is walking on the sea, and the boat is suddenly docked at the land that they were traveling to. Who's the audience of this miracle? Is it a multitude? It's just his disciples, just the 12. They're in a boat, and Jesus appears to them on the sea. So what's the point? What is Jesus doing here? Like, couldn't he have just gotten in the boat with them and traveled across the Sea of Galilee? Jesus is driving home the point that he just was making by feeding this multitude with a Lunchable. Jesus is driving home the point that he is sovereign over creation. He is able to walk on the stormy waves of a lake. Anybody done that? He is sovereign over creation. He is able to cause the boat to spontaneously arrive at his destination. He's not merely a prophet. The crowd had that much right. This is the prophet. And he's certainly no political revolutionary. Let's go and kick out the Romans. He is the son of God. What are the greatest needs in your life right now? Are there places where you need to seek Jesus' riches in glory? Jesus told his followers in Matthew 6, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about the details of life. Just concern yourself with following Jesus and let him take care of those details. Would you say today that you've been seeking first the kingdom of God? What do you need to hand over to him this morning? He is able and willing to meet your needs. What he wants is your heart. So make the decision this morning not to hold back your heart from him, and know that you can trust him to take care of you. And just in case you aren't sure that you can trust him, you're not certain that he really has what it takes, remember that this Jesus is the one who walks on stormy seas, who has sovereign control over even the wind and the waves, the one who takes a lunchable and provides a feast to thousands. What in your life could possibly be out of reach? of the one who formed the universe and upholds it by his power. Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed at your power and your goodness. You are powerful. You are sovereign. You own the universe. You operate it as you choose. You violate the very laws of of nature that we come to know and expect and lean on whenever you desire. 
You are powerful. And yet, your power alone is not good news to us. Because if you, if, if you are sovereign and a bully, we are in a bad situation. But Lord, you're not just powerful. You are good. You are kind. You are compassionate. You are merciful. And as we see Jesus meeting the needs of this crowd and providing maybe the most food that they have eaten in weeks or months or years. We are amazed at your compassion. And we are thankful that in your sovereign power, you see us and you know our need and you want to meet us there with grace. Open our eyes to see who you are. Enlarge our hearts to trust you more. Teach us to take those steps of faith that we know we should take, but we're too busy flipping through our wallets, counting up the cost. Teach us to trust you more, and then let us be amazed as we watch you work in and through our lives for the glory of your name.